The antidote. The antidote. The antidote. The antidote. The antidote. The antidote. You're listening to the antidote with Dave Hawkins. I started to ache when I started to think of you. Wondering how long it would take before I step into something new. There's so much I could fake. There's only so much that I can listening to The Antidote on Trent Radio at 92.7 FM, Peterborough. I'm your host, Dave Hawkins. You know, the best part of doing this program is sharing the music of many of my favorite artists. Sometimes they're new artists, sometimes they're from the past, and on the next two episodes of The Antidote, I get to do both. Our opening song, Soundtrack for our movie, 
comes from an artist I first heard back in 2002 and who became hugely influential on the music scene. This will be the first of a two-part look into the music from the band May, and next week we move into the music of Schematic. But the common link between these bands is that both feature Dave Elkins as the primary songwriter and lead vocalist. Dave and I had a quite lengthy conversation about both musical projects, so it's time to get it rolling. Let's head into the roots of May with Dave Elkins. The Antidote is here with Dave Elkins, lead vocalist for a pair of bands, May and Schematic. Dave, really, this seriously, this is a treat to have you on The Antidote. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Is it okay if I admit that I'm, I'm not quite on the verge, but I'm almost there of being a fanboy? Ooh, okay, well, uh... That sounds a little creepy, no? Let's just, <laughs> let's just, let's just leave it at a fan. Okay, yeah, yeah. When you put boy after it and you make it one word, it sort of turns into a... Into a whole creepy kind of thing. It, it changes the, uh, the semantic of the whole thing, to say the least. But yeah, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. How about giving us the roots of Maeve? I mean, how did all of you guys come together to create the band? Yeah, um, back in 2001, actually, uh, New Year's on 2000, 1999 into 2000, Jacob Marshall, May's drummer and I, we were uh, down in Nags Head, North Carolina, um, at a beach house with a bunch of our friends, just coincidentally, uh, we weren't friends yet, but we ended up striking a conversation that lasted several hours. I played him a bunch of music from bands and artists I was listening to, and you know, I had been in a bunch of garage and high school bands growing up, and I told him what was missing from my life as far as you know what I wanted to do in music. Um, all those other bands just weren't giving me the opportunity, and uh, he was a dreamer himself and wanted to play music, wanted to play drums. Uh, in a band for a living if possible and you know growing up in Virginia Beach Virginia it's not like a Chicago or an LA or New York City you know some of these these bigger cities where um, music is essentially you know maybe a small part but still a part of the economy so uh, it was sort of unbelievable for us growing up that we could be in these bands but interestingly enough both his dad and mine were both in bands um, that had some success, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And so we had sort of in our lineage, like a history of, you know, wanting it and pursuing it, you know, so much that it actually happened. We were both passionate about music. We're both passionate about um, people. We're both passionate about, um, you know, the power of music as as communication um, with those that you've, you know, essentially never met. So that night, we listened to music for hours and we, um, you know, just kind of dreamed up our individual and all of a sudden it seemed like our collective dream that would become May. You know, from then on we just started to uh, hang. I was in college. Uh, we both went to Old Dominion University and I'd go over to his apartment after I'd get out of class and we'd just keep doing the same thing, just listening to music and uh, eventually I started bringing some songs that I was writing to him and uh you know, it took a very long time because uh, Mark Paget, our bass player, mm-hmm. he has one of the only studios in Virginia Beach, maybe one of three or so. And uh, he had recorded the band I was in at the time called Sky's the Limit. And he said, hey, man, next time you want to record something, it's on me. 
and uh, he said just have to be flexible with my schedule obviously because it's going to be a free project for you and so anytime I'm not working you know I'll invite you to come to the studio and record what you're working on wow so over the course of uh, 2000 and through 2001 uh, I'd get into the studio about once a month and just record you know until he said you know time's up uh, we'll get back to it as soon as possible and Mark became our bass player we were we were like a worship band at our church so before uh, and after services or rehearsals we would then kind of work on what became May and uh, so we'd be in the sanctuary we'd be rehearsing these songs and um, then we get into the studio and start recording so it was sort of backwards where you know a lot of bands will write a few songs get their first show together invite their friends out play as many shows as, as they can until they make enough money um, or save enough money through the jobs that the band members all have to save up some cash and get to the studio and record well we performed our first show after we had recorded an EP's worth of material. <laughs> um, and we ended up playing no more than probably 10 to 15 shows before we were signed to Tooth and & Nail. And we were uh, you know, with an agent, with a manager. And when we finally hit the road in, in January of 2003, before our first record, Destination Beautiful, came out, um, we didn't even come home until June. So, you know, it was a wonderful experience and it was sort of not the one that you, you know, formulate in your head when you're thinking, well, I'm going to take a stab at trying to be in a band and, and do it this way. We did it quite the opposite. We recorded a record, we gave it a tooth and nail, they put it out like a few months later, and we just started touring the country and, and in turn touring the world. Save yourself Cause the only thing that matters that you get away from the pain and the thought of losing your mind Don't blame yourself It was everyone around that made you act this way There's a stage and a chance to watch it go down Fake yourself into ever, ever thinking about yesterday That was then, this is now Don't call it undone Don't take what you've been dealt You can exit out the back and make your getaway Before anyone can see
fast track but of course you said about your dad so i guess you were genetically destined to be able to do this uh, i kind of feel that way um some of my earliest childhood memories i remember my mom uh picking me up and dancing with me in the living room to thriller uh, by michael <laughs> jackson and uh you know that record came out in 82 which is the year i was born so it couldn't have been you know too long after that album came out that that's one of my earliest childhood memories she used to sit with me in the den and um, play piano with me my mom played piano growing up so I I had uh, you know you know both parents uh, musical my dad even more so and you know at a very young age music just hit me in a place where I connected with it like you know all of us do in, in some ways but this was like I remember doing things like uh some of my favorite bands lyrics like writing them down on paper just so I could look at them and see them in my own handwriting because I wasn't a songwriter by any means yet but I wanted to be so like I would sort of emulate these things or or pretend or even dream these things up when I was probably like 11 and 12 years old just just wanting that to be a way that I could self-express. I was a I was a drummer in my first band when I was 14 almost 15 played bass in my second band uh, and sang a little bit of backup vocals and then played guitar and sang some lead vocals in my third band and then my fourth band, which is the one right before May. That's when uh, I was pretty much writing most of it, uh, playing guitar, and, you know, I was the lead singer. So um, this was an interesting way to grow up musically. It's not like I was destined to be a lead singer of a band or um, in one sense I, I guess I was um, I just wanted to be a part of it I wanted to be a part of music I wanted to be a part of the creative process of music as soon as my grandparents bought me my first guitar I grabbed a, a chord book at the music store and just started teaching myself enough to where I could start playing along to some of the songs that I listened to on the radio and and I started moving around uh, a lot in middle school and high school. I actually went to two different middle schools and three different high schools. And music, it became that friend that I didn't have in school anymore because I was having to, to switch around so much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you're that age, formulative years, when you're sort of trying to figure out who you are and it matters to you what other people think about you and... Um, you know, you, you want to belong and you also want to have your own identity. Music was something that was pulling that out of me uh, before I was knowledgeable enough to respond to music. And then as soon as I could, I just, I just kind of ran with it. And, um, and that what got me to where I met Jacob years later and was sort of ready to go on that May journey. 
Talk about the May journey, but what came first? I know the May is an acronym, and of course, I'll let you explain it. Did the acronym come first, or did the music come first? Yeah, actually, the acronym did, and that was what was another thing that bonded Jacob and I. Is um, he was at school, and he was uh, through interdisciplinary studies developing his own major, um, studying aesthetic theory. So you know. Um, what is beauty, how we perceive it differently, um, and especially how do we perceive music, how does it affect our senses. He did some of these really fascinating studies when he was in college, like uh, Rorschach testing, you know, like ink blot testing. He would um, pick about 30 different uh, ink blot images, and he would play classical music in a major key, say G major, Mm -hmm. And have these people, you know, write down what they saw in these images. And then he would wait one year and then he'd go back to them, show them the same images so they had enough time, you know, to forget what they saw. And then he would play classical music in G minor. Hmm. And what they would see would be different. Whereas when it was in a major key, they would see a butterfly. And when it was in a minor key, they would see a bat. He also interviewed people that had perfect pitch. And he would play music for them. And they had like this form of synesthesia where their senses would sort of uh, affect the others. Um, so they would listen to music and they would tell Jacob what colors they saw in their mind. Yes. And so that was what Jacob was studying in college. And it was really interesting to him. And of course, um, I grew up in this this whole emo scene. And in high school, I was listening to a lot of emo bands that they were sort of neglecting traditional song structures and they were writing something that specifically would take you on an emotional journey or the the musical parts were written to self-express almost more than they were to traditionally execute a song. And so I was really interested in just like a different approach to how you can self-express, how you can, you know, musically paint a picture. Growing up on classic rock, you know, like uh, Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles or some of these Led Zeppelin records, some of these conceptual records. I always loved records, period, that I could start on track one and just let play from start to finish. And in my own way, that's that's something that either I, I didn't realize or I knew but didn't know how it, it could happen uh, so beautifully, you know, that, that music could just kind of take me out of my real world and put me on a path and just let me 
dream and let me escape. So in love with music, even though we had two different approaches, um, the sentiment was the same. Anyway, May stands for multi-sensory aesthetic experience. You know, for years in May, that, that really didn't have an effect on our show. But what Jacob wanted was someday to sort of create this space where you're being hit with essentially every sense in the form of art. So musically, obviously, is affecting your ears, and there would be a visual component, and that would affect your eyes. And if there was something to touch, if there was something to smell, if there was something to taste, mm-hmm. if you could hit all five, then that was really going to uh, make Jacob's accomplishment you know, come to life. And uh, you know, I think it was like in 2008, maybe two, no, it was 2009, we get to a point in our set uh, live where You'd walk in to the door at the venue, and you'd be given a pair of May 3 glasses. And um, during our show, as you'd be watching video content the whole time, uh, there'd be a part in one of our longer songs. You'd be listening to the song. Video would be playing almost the entire time, and it would tell you, you know, now put on your 3 glasses. You'd put them on. You'd be in the middle of a rainstorm, and, like, tornadoes and wind clouds and lightning are coming at you. And we would place high-powered industrial fans in the room, and we'd get a lot of our May fans, and we would give them uh, spray water bottles. And so you would have 3D images at you while we're playing, like, minute-and-a-half-long guitar showing, and then it would start to get wind, and it would start to rain inside of the venue. <laughs> and so, and if you bought an EP at the, uh, at the merch table, and you rubbed it and smelled it, it was sort of like a scratch-and-sniff sticker on the cover of the CDs. We had morning, afternoon, and evening that all came out in 2009, and each disc had a scent to it. So uh, towards the end of, of May's run, um, you know, we were really starting to just kind of touch on that stuff. We still didn't even come close to what I, I know Jacob would love to accomplish, um, but his interest in that of art and the expression of art and the experience was something that was really exciting to me to have someone that was so passionate about you know how art affected uh, the senses and a person you know that was one of the main things that bonded us right off the bat
stay Over and over games we play We could rise or give in But over and over Cannot happen again This is how we stay Over and over games we find it difficult though because may had so many really talented musicians but like did that make the songwriting process easier or did it make it more difficult i think that it would be fair to say that it was a little bit of both um you know i was i was 20 years old when our first record came out i'm 32 now and when you're 20 years old and and you're a songwriter when people are telling you that what you're doing is good when you you know, bounce around a lot, like I said I did in, in, in high school, uh, you know, kind of came from a, a broken family as well. I was, um, had a very uh, sensitive ego, so it was really hard when I would write something that someone didn't like. And so when I wrote something and someone did like it, I felt like I had to protect it. I had to um, make sure that it was mine. And, um, so I think that a lot of immaturity and a lot of um, insecurity for me when I would be writing uh, with these great musicians, I would sort of almost dictate, uh, which is unfortunate, like right off the bat, I guess is what I mean. Like, hey, Rob, mm-hmm. you're the keys player. This is the melody. You can play it much better than I can. You play this. Jacob, this is the drum part. I was a drummer in my first band. You try to play this. 
And so the other half of it is that when we were recording Destination Beautiful, our first record, we only would have like one weekend or a couple of days in the studio. So we really had to be prepared. And as much as we were able to rehearse, um, sometimes we, we wouldn't know that we were going to walk into the studio and record for two days until like, you know, 24 to 48 hours before we were actually in there. So the, the process starting the band was not as collaborative as a lot of bands can be. Um, it was more just, uh, this is the song structure. Um, if you have any ideas, feel free to bring them. But if you don't, I've already got them. And we can kind of take it from here. And then as the band grew, a lot changed about that um, collaborative process. I mean, Rob is uh, the best keys player I've ever played with. Um, piano, you know, organ, Fender Rhodes, etc. Synth keys. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he wrote a lot of music towards the end of his run with Meg, but if I were to tell you like example of a song, you'd be like, I don't even hear any keys on it. It'd be really interesting because he'd write the song on keys, but he'd be like, and it's supposed to, like, this is a guitar part, and it's going to sound like this. Basically, you would expect the keys player to be, if he's writing more music, it's going to be more keys heavy. And um, at that time, that wasn't the case. So it's a long-winded way to say that I don't believe that May has truly written a collection of music that allows everyone to to shine in their musicianship and be in their own element as individuals within a group self-expressed through music the way that I believe that we were born to do together. Um, which on one hand is frustrating because, you know, I mean, we're getting back together and we're playing old songs. Mm-hmm. But you better believe that when we get together and we we do spend time in the studio it's all about understanding i think we all agree wholeheartedly that that's never been the case and that the possibilities of a true collaboration musically are more exciting for us than they've ever been because the maturity level has increased and our care for each other our concern for each other our ability to understand our weaknesses more than our strengths um those are some of the things that when you're 20 years old, and for me, I wasn't at a place where I was able to handle that load and make sure that all five of us were well, well represented musically. As a whole, I think that the musicianship of the band is still yet to fully be discovered in terms of how it makes May songs, period. Meaning that you are planning a future for May because you guys had gone on hiatus. Because your last recording was what, 09? Yeah, it was. Um, 09. What's really cool is that, um, you know, Rob and Mark both left the band in 2007, uh, maybe early 2008. And so Zach, Jacob, and I kept on with May until 2010. And 2009 was our last release. And we did a farewell tour in 2010. Uh, not saying that we're breaking up, but just saying that going to hang it up for a little while and uh, we're going to start investing into our more of our personal lives and the families that some of us were starting. And, you know, we really wanted to invest in other things. And members leave and as start kind of flipping through the labels of your career that, you know, you've released music on. Um, you start to kind of lose a sense of, of what success is. And uh, we were managing ourselves. We had started a label of our own. We had just really exhausted ourselves completely. Wow take that break but we also wanted to ask the guys mark and rob to come back with us to do our farewell and they agreed and as we were putting the final touches on our last ep 
evening, uh, we wrote one song together, and that was the first time where just freedom to, to express, freedom to create, we knew what we were going to write. That song, Bloom, uh, we listen to it and we perform it now. Um, that's like a moment where we created something as a unit that we all believe in. You know, like the lyrics were written by all of us, the, the musical parts were written by all of us. Um, there was just a freedom and a comfort, a sanctuary, I guess, within the band that, that we had when we started. And that's how we ended um, our, our May run back in 2010 was by listening to a song that we had just written together on, on the eve of our farewell and thought, oh man, there's, there's something very genuine and powerful here that is stronger than anything that we've ever done and we're realizing this as we say goodbye to May for a while. And so that was obviously bittersweet, but it kept that door open. There is a feeling in May that, you know, beyond just this tour, um, if there is another life to May that we have no idea what the possibilities are creatively because, um, you know, we still had never reached our, our fullest potential as a, as a songwriting unit. Hey, this is Dave Elkins from May and Schematic, and you are checking out The Antidote.
take it back to the past you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about a conceptual album when you did the everglow i consider it to be the best concept album i've ever heard <laughs> thanks but did you design the everglow as a conceptual album well at, at first we didn't um we were just writing songs you know um on tour on on breaks from tour very very short breaks from tour um we would uh you know, write a song and get it well enough along to where we could include it into our set on our next tour. And a lot of these tours, we were supporting acts. So we wouldn't be playing for an hour and 15 minutes. We'd be playing for 30 minutes. So to introduce a new song in a set where you're trying to win over new fans, because, you know, the headlining band is the one that is bringing most of these people into the club. Um, you're taking a risk, but these songs were identifying with people. And um, that was exciting for us. So we would keep at it, keep at it, just like anyone would when they're, you know, writing their follow-up record. And it was about halfway through the process that I was realizing that if you put these songs in a particular order, they were kind of telling the story of the dream coming true for, for me, for Jacob and I, and I'm, you know, I'm certain for the five of us that we were actually playing music as our career. We were um, meeting people where they were and our music was having impact on them the same way that music was having impact on me when I was younger. You know, at, at this point in May's career, um, we were just so in awe of the fact that we were, you know, bouncing from city to city and tour to tour. And we were now making our second record and um, the dream was alive and it was very true. So if you put the songs in a particular order, it could talk about being in a place of um, wonder and expectation to going through some self-realization, some highs and definitely some lows, and then on the other side realizing that, in fact, the dream did come true. And it's just, you know, it's just a thing where anyone, whether they play music for a living or, you know, they, they just need an hour and 15 minutes worth of motivation to understand that, you know, what you want out of your life, what you believe in for yourself, it's all possible. It's all in front of you. You know, you have to go out there and, and make it happen at times. And, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of fate involved and sometimes there's a whole lot of you making it happen involved. And um, this was the case as we were understanding who we were individually and, and as May. It's magic, she says to me her way she approaches sweetly it's enough when i see that look in her eyes it's enough for me to paralyze whoa, whoa, waiting for the breakdown nothing feels good being under the gun whoa, i'm waiting for the breakdown
through the process we said well let's you know let's do something a little different let's uh let's tell this story and um i i remember learning how to read at a young age with books on tape and uh these disney books where you put a tape in the cassette player and um you'd read along and the narrator at the beginning would say you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this and it would play that chime and then if you you know if you were learning how to read but you didn't understand all the words then that would get you to the next page and um so I just love that, and it was such a vivid memory in my mind growing up. I thought, well, let's just do like this conceptual record. It's like a book on tape, and we'll make it so not only is there a story that's told throughout the journey of the record, but the artwork will then fit in a greater way. And this was in 2004 that we were recording this record and writing these songs. Right. Um, and so it was like this pivotal moment where digital was starting to um, you know, creep in and records were being pirated and um you know people were starting to write more for itunes and single worthy and we were writing you know in our mind singles but we wanted to make an album that would sort of stand the test of this digital age and this digital movement that was coming in and making uh full-length albums just less significant so for all of the different reasons and all of the different influences that were swirling in and around what we were doing where we, we decided to run with it and the producer of the Everglow, Ken Andrews, um, he was in a band called Failure back in the 90s that I was a big fan of and a few of, of May's uh, members were fans of as well. Mm-hmm. Failure had a record called Fantastic Planet, and um, that was a very sort of conceptual record. It had segues and um, you know ebbs and flows to it that you know you had to experience from start to finish. And so when we were able to secure Ken as our producer... 
I knew that he would be into this idea based on what he had done in his previous band, you know, over a decade earlier. It just worked out. And some of the pieces didn't fall in line until the very last minute. I mean, the whole, uh, you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear this sound and welcome to the Everglow by May. That was uh, read by Ken's wife. Oh. And, and that, that happened like, you know, that was one of the very last things that we recorded. Rob wrote that piano part and she spoke over top of it. And that was like, we got to go home because our time in the studio is, is over. But let's just finally do this last thing. So we were all just sort of wondering up until you know the very last minute if this was going to come together well as a concept and the artwork you know we had ideas for the artwork um we hired um through our label um what were they called back then they called like squad studios or um they're called invisible creature now oh yes um uh yeah and so um they did obviously an amazing job on the artwork and making it feel like a, a storybook almost for children um but having like a sense of maturity and depth to it and almost like a darkness at times. It's just kind of one of those things where the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and um, it, it worked out. And, uh, you know, some of it was very intentional. Obviously, some of it was just we're writing songs or making a new record. And some of it was people outside with, uh, with greater skill and, you know, their own sense of creativity coming alongside and helping May's vision. I'm still a big fan of the Everglow album, even though it's almost a decade since its release. Next week, we return to our talk with Dave Elkins of May and Schematic. We'll finish up our look at the Everglow album and what's currently happening with May. We'll also spend some time with Dave and the music he's been creating with Schematic. Thanks once again for listening in to The Antidote, and be sure to tune in for our next episode. Here's another track from May's The Everglow mistakes we knew we were making see you next week we made plans to be unbreakable love was all we knew no insurance for the unthinkable blindly get us through we've been searching for a lifetime Short as it may seem Riding on the fumes that spark
Yeah, it's all.